Bible is a big book, so how do we really make sense of it all? Does it matter where we begin to read or whether we take things in order? Is the Bible actually even based on real history? Today on Encounter God's Truth, we'll learn some important answers to these questions as we begin a brand new series called Basic Biblical Distinctions. Our speaker is author, educator, and Bible teacher, Dr. John Whitcomb. I'm Wayne Shepherd, your host, encouraging you to remain with us to hear part one of a message on the five worlds of history, science, and prophecy. You see, this series will be unique in that it will examine a number of topics related to biblical history and apologetics, as well as some of the most important doctrinal and practical truths that flow from those subjects. It would actually be a great place to point someone who has never heard our program before. Just tell them how they can listen to it anytime at sermonaudio.com slash Whitcomb. It's sure to reinforce the message that God's Word is true from the beginning to the end. Dr. Whitcomb presented the messages from this series together several years ago at a conference held at Grace Bible Church in Elkhart, Indiana. We thank this church for allowing us to bring them to you here on Encounter God's Truth. In fact, let's go now to their auditorium to listen as Dr. Whitcomb presents Part 1 of The Five Worlds. Now, friends, tonight, The Five Worlds. One... Two, three, four, five. This is where we are right here. Now, here's how the Apostle Peter describes our world system. Now, this is a bigger picture than what we call dispensations, in which you have a distinctive relationship between God, angels, men, animals, climate, topography, and geography of the world. Each world is totally different from the ones before it and after it. And here we are. Here's what Peter calls us. Are you ready? The present heavens and earth, from the Genesis flood to the second coming of Christ. We'll discuss that in more detail in just a moment. But that's where we are. And as we look back, we see two previous world systems, very, very different from ours. In my opinion, you just can't get more different between what we are now and what the world was like at the beginning. That's, what's that? A dinosaur. Guess what? In that first world, they were all friendly, harmless, beautiful creatures. I want a videotape someday of Adam and Eve going up and patting dinosaurs. My, can you imagine that? They were all plant eaters. That's Genesis 1.30. Herbivores, harmless, beautiful. I mean, I can't imagine how marvelous those creatures must have looked to Adam and Eve. By the way, he never named them. You knew that, didn't you? In Genesis 2, he only named what? Birds and mammals, not reptiles, lizards, echinoderms, cylinderates, mollusks, fishes, insects. No, just birds and mammals. Okay? 8,700 kinds of beautiful birds. 5,500 kinds of beautiful mammals. He classified them. He saw what they were like, compared and contrasted them to every other thing he saw that God showed him and thus had taxonomic mastery of that segment of the animal kingdom before he was one day old. My, what, a, what an amazing mind God gave to the first human being that walked the earth. And of course that night, before he was even one full day old, he was married. My, <laughs> you say, Dr. Whitcomb, you expect us to believe things like that? And I say, Lord, help me to be careful here because the distinctives of creation things are so challenging to our imagination that you do not argue with people 
about this. Now, that'll be our topic, God willing, tomorrow morning. How I came to know the Lord was not by having a brilliant scientist prove to me that Genesis is true. He did something far more effective. He told me who Jesus Christ is, what he did on the cross and his resurrection, and how I can be saved by accepting his gift of eternal life. And how I was converted at Princeton University as a godless evolutionist in 1943. So we're going to discuss the implications of that, God willing, tomorrow morning in two sessions. Two sessions. Hope you can join us. But friends, you don't discuss these things with an unbeliever. Jesus warned us about that. I even hate to quote the verse, but here it comes. Are you ready for this? Now remember, everything Jesus did and said was in love for our best. He said, do not cast your pearls before what? Swine. Why not? Because they'll trample them underfoot and turn and rend you. They hate the pearls of biblical truth, which we're talking about tonight. They hate you for giving them these pearls. So what do you do if you love people? You do what's necessary to change swine into sheep. How do you do that? Regeneration by the Holy Spirit through the word. That's the secret, the power of God. And then once a person comes to know who Jesus is, he has no problems with Genesis chapters 1 and 2, or Genesis 1 to 11. Creation, the curse, the flood, the Tower of Babel dispersion. Now, friends, that first world, as you see here, probably lasted less than a month. You say, really? Well, think about it. The night Adam and Eve were married, God said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And they were physically, genetically perfect people. Do you think months and months would have gone by before they would conceive a child? No. But the first child they conceived was conceived after they had already fallen into sin. And his name was Cain, a murderer of the evil one. Number two, Eve was tempted so soon after she was created, she hadn't had time to learn yet that animals don't talk. Now, Adam knew that, but Eve didn't by experience. So Satan could reach her through the mouth of a what? Of a serpent. Number three, God wanted Adam and Eve to love him. And you can't love a person unless you choose to. So God said, you must make a choice. Here's their choice. Now, can you imagine a simpler choice than this? Of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat except that one. I mean, how simple can you be? How clear? And Adam and Eve deliberately, intentionally, voluntarily chose that tree, knowing full well what God had said. In the day you eat thereof, you shall what? Surely die. Now, see, friends, how suddenly, quickly, rapidly things happen at the beginning of the world. It was an adequate time to test them, to give them a choice. <clears throat> and every day you and I live, we are repeat performances of what Adam and Eve chose. That's Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray, not just Adam and Eve. We have turned each one to his own way. Every day we live, choices, choices. To forget God, ignore God, just 
just say to yourself, Lord, help me for one hour to have a perfect understanding and a relationship to you. Just try that. I met a person, I can hardly believe this. He said, I am, I am now sin, sinlessly perfect. Oh, really? Oh, he said, well, I do make mistakes. <laughs> Dear friends, may God help us to see reality. Sin and redemption that God provided to cover it, to pay for it, to deal with it. Now, that's what the world was like at the beginning. It was the only perfect world there's ever been or ever will be in which God in his relation to all angels, were still believers, worshipers of God, including Satan. Okay, that's Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. All humans were perfect. All animals were perfect. Everything was perfect. All through Genesis chapter 1. This is kind of haunting. And God saw that it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good, good, good. And finally, what? God saw it was very good. Everything he'd made. All angels, all men, everything very good. Lord, someday when we get to heaven, perhaps tonight, please show us what that first world was really like. We can hardly imagine the perfection of that world system. Well, friends, as we've said, it came to a crashing halt when Adam, not Eve, this is amazing, when Adam made the choice they both died. As in one man, sin entered the world. As through Adam, you see, he was the what? Responsible person in that family unit to make the choice against God that affected both. And immediately they discovered that they were sinful, loathsome. They were terrified, horrified. They fled behind trees. They, when they heard the footsteps of the Lord coming toward them, they were in total terror. When God confronted them, they said totally wrong things about each other and about God. Remember what Adam said? This woman you gave me, she gave me to eat. I'm not, I'm innocent. You've wrecked my life. You gave me this awful person. Can you imagine the change of attitude toward his wife? And she, of course, she said, I'm totally innocent. The serpent made me do it. I'm totally innocent. No consciousness, no awareness of the magnitude of sin. And that's most of our problem today, friends, why we don't look to the Lord for help each day, each morning, each hour. Lord, help me. Keep me straight and true and faithful to you every day. And I say, Lord, I, I just I need your help. Now, friends, when that choice was made by Adam, immediately five things happened. You know what they were, don't you? At that moment, they became sinful. See? They died spiritually, not physically. But they did become mortal, number two. They began to die physically. Now, it took Adam how many years to die? 930 years to die. My. I, I just can't imagine that. So powerful were those first people. I'm, I'm thinking if Adam came here tonight and sat in this front pew, he would come up afterward and say, Dr. Whitcomb, you look so tired. You must be 700 years old. <laughs> 700, sir, I'm not even 100. I know what he'd say next, don't you? Just look at you. That's it. Powerful people. But he was mortal. He died. Okay? Number three, Eve's body began to change so that henceforth she would bring forth children in pain. 
Number four, the animal kingdom was cursed, represented by what happened to the serpent. Number five, the ground was cursed. Thorns, thistles, labor, toil, frustration for years that Adam and his children would face in earning a living in a cursed world. And I say, Lord, how desperately we need your help. How desperately we need it. Okay. That inaugurated what? The second world. Which lasted 1,656 years. That was the worst system this planet has ever known or ever will. It was so awful, dear friends, that by the time it ended, perhaps a billion people on this planet, all depraved and demonic. You say, really? Well, with one exception, Noah and his family, eight people. Do you know what God tells us about that world? I mean, this is, uh, this is astounding. He said, he, he saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every thought of the imagination of their hearts was only evil continually. I mean, you can't get that bad without demonic help. You say, what do you mean demonic help? Well, Jude and Second Peter tell us something that's very hard to fathom. He said, the angels that kept not their first estate, these are fallen angels, by the way, demons, went after strange flesh and therefore are consigned to pits and chains of darkness until the judgment of the great day. Who are those? Well, those are the sons of God, B'nai Elohim of Genesis 6, who dominated the bodies of depraved men, who dominated depraved women. And the result was what? Demonism everywhere. I, I just don't even want to think about it. It was so awful. A demonic world system. And I say, Lord, help me to believe that you were so amazingly gracious to even spare anybody out of the human race that fell to such depravity. So, friends, as you read the story of how it happened in Genesis 3, 4, 5, and 6, you see that things got worse and worse and worse and worse. And, in fact... Here's one of the hardest verses of the Bible for a Bible teacher to understand. Here it is. Are you ready? God saw that things were so bad, he, he, he was sorry he made man upon the earth. Really? Then why did he do it? Because he, from all eternity past, he had a plan, didn't he? That someday he would send whom? A savior, his own son who could not have appeared on this earth if he had wiped out the human race at the time of the flood. So God spared the human race of total destruction until the seed of the woman could come to crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15, and defeat Satan forever. Thank you, God, for your mercy, your love, your grace, through Jesus Christ, your son. So you see, that's how the human race survived the flood. In what? A gigantic box called Noah's Ark. My, you mean flood waters covered the, all the mountains of the world for months? Can you? By the way, how many have heard recently of a uh, tsunami? Japan. Four years ago, a tsunami in the Indian Ocean. You say, what's a tsunami? Well, the ocean floor collapses several feet, maybe 10 or 15, a collapse of the ocean floor. 
creating, and since water can't be compressed, it creates a shock wave 500 miles an hour that swept across the Indian Ocean. And if a ship was on that water, no problem. It would just rise and then settle back down where it was before because the wave is not just 500 miles an hour, it's 500 miles long. So in one hour, the ship rises maybe 15 or 20 feet from where it was and settles back down. The place not to be is where? On the shore. As the ocean suddenly, mysteriously retreats, don't rush out to pick up shells. It's coming back. And 250,000 people died. Very few animals died. They had a premonition of the tsunami and fled and survived. Can you imagine? Not just one tsunami during the Genesis flood, but millions of them simultaneously crisscrossing each other all over the world. On top of which, a box was floating in the protective hand of God with eight people in it and two each of every air-breathing animal in the world. You say, Dr. Whitcomb, you expect us to believe that? No, not unless God has changed your heart to believe all that he's written. You remember the two on the road to Emmaus? I put myself in, that, in their shoes sometimes. They were very frustrated men, very perplexed men. Jesus joined them as they walked toward Emmaus, Luke 24. And uh, they, he asked them, well, what are you discussing here? He said, haven't you heard? Jesus of Nazareth, we thought would be the Messiah, but he's dead. He's gone. Even in spite of the fact that the women had reported that the tomb was empty. They still couldn't believe he had said over and over and over again, I'm going to rise from the dead after I'm crucified. And, and you know what he said to them? I, I hate to say this, but here's what he said. Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that what? The prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses, that's Genesis. And all the prophets, he spoke to them of the things concerning himself. I want a tape recording of that talk. My. Friends, I don't want Jesus to say to me, oh, fool and slow of heart, you should have believed more and much and most, in fact, all of everything I ever said. I say, Lord, help me to be more faithful to the revelation you committed to me in your word. I've had great Bible teachers, friends, in my younger years. And I say, Lord, I'm accountable to you for everything you've taught me. So I say, Lord, now help me to understand this. On top of that vast mountain-covering year-long flood was what? A gigantic box with eight people in it and all the animals that you spared alive to repopulate the world. And thus, as you look at the effect of that flood on the world, you see that's the key to unlock the mystery and marvel of how the world was created. Why? Because the trillions of fossils of fishes Echinoderms, cylinderates, mollusks, reptiles, mammals, all these creatures, trillions of them fossilized, preserved in the mud, in the layers, in the strata, were put down not long years before Adam and Eve, but during the year-long flood in the days of Noah. And therefore, you don't have to have billions of years, you see, of earth history to explain how the fossils got there. The hydrodynamics of the deluge is the key for world history. I didn't believe that when I first began teaching the Old Testament at Grace Theological Seminary in 1951, 52, 53. 
until God in his mercy sent a great godly hydraulic engineer to lecture at our school on the magnitude and effects of the flood. This is Henry Morris. I said, Dr. Morris, I'm overwhelmed by what you said. It's not the fossils before Adam and Eve. They weren't walking on a vast cemetery filled with the fossils of extinct animals they would never see alive. It's the fossilization that occurred uniquely, exclusively in the flood after Adam and Eve, 1,656 years after them. Thank you. So I decided to write a dissertation, a doctoral dissertation on the flood. Spent four years on that project. Ended up with a 450-page dissertation. And Henry Morris agreed with me to co-author a book, which is finally published 50 years ago, last month, The Genesis Flood. And I say, thank you, God. We're celebrating 50 years of how you've used the book to help people realize the significance of the deluge in unlocking the mystery of the origin of the world. By the way, an official update of that book is now available. 1,500 pages by a great Australian geologist, Andrew Snelling, Earth's Catastrophic Past, two volumes. And I say, Lord, that's just the beginning. I mean, by the way, we don't hand these out at street meetings. But people need to realize we have discovered massive additional information, confirmation of what happened during the year of the flood to this previous world system. Well, of course, that flood inaugurated what now? The third system in which you and I now live. Because when the flood ended, Noah and his family stepped out into a totally new kind of world. On the mountains of Ararat where that ark landed, it was cold at night and in the winter. Can you imagine it being cold at night and in the winter? You understand we're in a global warming situation. (laughs) And dinosaurs, reptiles couldn't handle that. And that was a means by which God wiped them off the face of the earth forever. They gradually all became extinct. The great reptiles, the great ones. Okay, There are a few still left, smaller ones, as you understand, in Florida, alligators, Africa, crocodiles, and so forth. But the huge ones, like Tyrannosaurus rex, are gone forever. That ended the dinosaur kingdom. Because God said when those four men stepped out of the ark, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the animals now will be afraid of you, Genesis 9-2. Before the flood, you were afraid of them. Now, you're a new world, a modification of the intensity of the Edenic curse. So when you stop to think about this, friends, it's really amazing how, how, what a change has happened. I mean, just stop to think for a minute. In the last 12 months of your life, now just think, how many hours have you spent running away from deadly animals? Zero. Well, before the flood, it was totally different. People were in constant terror of flesh-eating animals. It says it twice in Genesis 6, the whole earth was filled with violence. It was filled with violence. Violent men, violent dinosaurs. Violent, I mean, it was a horrible, horrible world. And Noah's father said, I can't take it. Use my baby boy, Noah, Lord, to bring comfort, relief to the world because of the ground which you cursed. And now we have a modification of the curse since the flood. 
Now, don't take unfair advantage of that and go off in Florida and chase alligators. They get between a papa alligator and his food or mama gator and her baby. It could be a problem. But just think how different this third world is from the second one. Okay. Well, Lord, thank you for this third world in which you put us with the modification of the curse and the marvelous new things you've revealed to us. To Noah, the inauguration of human government, Genesis 9. Through Abraham, the promise that you made to Israel, I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you. Watch Israel. God made an unconditional covenant for that nation. We'll have to put our bookmark right there for next time when we'll listen to more about the five worlds from Dr. Whitcomb's new series on basic biblical distinctions. Whitcomb Ministries is privileged to bring you this Christ-exalting radio and Internet outreach, and we offer it up with praise to God and thanks to the great outlets that bring it to you. For more information about Encounter God's Truth, join us at whitcombministries.org and at facebook.com slash Ministries where we have a constant flow of new material and information. I'm Wayne Shepherd, leaving you today with these words from the ninth Psalm. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice, and He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know Your name put their trust in You, for You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. Sing praises to the Lord, who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples His deeds.